when someone's perception is that you think you're the smartest person in the room, it tends to put them off and not really elicit cooperation outside of like emergency type situations. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Rob Hornbuckle, CISO at Allegiant Airlines. Rob shares why looking like the smartest person in the room can stifle collaboration and why earning the business's trust won't happen until you're seen as an equal, and how to get there. For a CISO to be successful, they need the trust of other business leaders. But that takes time. How can you build that trust without sacrificing the effectiveness of your security program? And where do soft skills come into play? Okay, Rob, first off, thanks for being on the show. And if you would, for the uninitiated, uh, tell us who you are. Hi, <laughs> I'm Rob Hornbuckle. I am currently the CISO for Allegiant Airlines. Prior to that, I did a, a stint as an interim CISO and a little bit of architecture work for United Technologies Aerospace Systems. And prior to that, I ran security for the Arby's Restaurant Group. Fantastic. We had a long conversation, I don't know, probably about a week ago. And my outline of things I want to ask you is extensive, so I hope we get to all of it. But kind of the, the first thing I want to get to, you know, you had an interesting statement around just advice that you would have to your, your younger self. And it was around an issue actually moving into management, which is something a lot of us have had sort of problems with. What was the scenario there and, and what, what's sort of the advice you'd have back to yourself? Or what was the scenario and then what's the advice? I'm probably going to come up with a different answer. I'm racking my brain to try to remember what I told you the first time. Because uh, <laughs> there's just so many lessons and so many different things that you learn going up through all of that. Right. I actually got put into a security leadership position really early in my career. You could call it fortunate or unfortunate, however you want to view it. But I learned a lot of things real quick. I cut my teeth really hard. <laughs> and I learned a lot about invisible walls and roadblocks and all kinds of different things that I had no idea would be there. And that has to do with that transition from being a, a technical expert into getting into that leadership and, and management type position. And I don't even mean management of employees. I just mean management as in the senior leadership of the organization. The main thing that I would make sure to go back and tell myself is <laughs> to work more on those soft skills and to work more on those people skills, uh, people skills. And relationships matter. It's not like dating relationships or anything like that, but the relationships and the business relationships that you have with people at the organization significantly matter at those higher leadership and, and higher in charge of the program levels where they never really mattered that significantly previously. And it's not skills that you really pay that attention to. Right. So it's kind of to set the stage a little more in that movement into leadership, there was there or was there not a security program that existed prior to you kind of becoming that that person? Uh, well, it depends on which organization you're talking about. Uh, that first role that I had in leadership, which was not at any of the companies I mentioned earlier, there was not a program. They brought me in specifically to build a program. Okay. With 
respect to the fact that I had built a program out with assistance from someone else in the past. So I had experience building security programs. But I was definitely employee one, day one, building out the security program for that organization. Yeah. So that, that I think is an important thing to note for those listening is that you were kind of doing two things with that move. You were moving into leadership, if I understand it correctly. And you're also building a program where one didn't exist before. And those are both massive challenges, especially when, as you noted, maybe you should have worked more on relationships in that. So were you hard to get along with or what's the issue there, right? It's, obviously, there's challenges moving into a new job and starting a program, but was there something heavier on top of that that was going on with you? Well, it's not necessarily being hard to get along with. It's just if you don't actually put any effort towards it, it's never going to grow. You mm. could be the, the nicest person in the world. You could be the, the greatest guy. You could be the easiest person to work with. But if you don't actually put effort to doing it, those relationships, they just won't grow. In many ways, it's kind of like friendships. If you have a friend, in order to become a friend with that person, you have to put effort in. Sometimes it can happen effortless, effortlessly, but you really do need to invest in a friendship to really develop one. And the same is true when it comes to those business relationships. You really need to invest in them in order to develop. And without them, you'll be chugging along, building this program, getting things going the way that you want to, and all of a sudden just slam into this invisible wall that you have no idea why it's there, how it's there, or what happened coming out of left field. And all of a sudden, it's just like, what happened? Uh, I was technically in the right. I was maybe even business practice in the right. But all of a sudden, I'm getting derailed, and I don't understand why. And it almost always comes back to not properly and appropriately investing in those business relationships. And I think also, and I've got a, a note later on, we're going to talk about invisible walls, but also maybe in required investment back into yourself too, which you have sort of several things that you're going to share with on, on that topic, or at least I'm going to ask you about them. You may not know you're going to share yet, but <laughs> so you made a statement to me in this same sort of period of time. So again, for those that are listening that maybe aren't yet a security leader, maybe they're being asked to build a security program. The comment you made that I'd like you to kind of expand on is you said it's not good enough to be the smartest guy in the room. In fact, it's detrimental. Why is that? Why does that matter when you're trying to build out a program and, and working on these issues? Why is it no longer the best to be the smartest? So I'll, I'll correct you a little bit. It's not that it's not best to be the smartest. It's not best to be perceived as the smartest because mm. generally everyone's perception is their reality. And right. you're really working with their perceptions. And when someone's perception is that you think you're the smartest person in the room, it tends to put them off and not really elicit cooperation outside of like emergency type situations. So if, <laughs> if you're in the middle of an emergency, if there's an active shooter situation or you have a breach going on at the moment, yeah, that's going to be a completely different way of handling the situation and people will respond completely differently. But at the, in the course of day to day operations, that can be a detrimental thing. So right. you really have to take this stance of being open and, and listening and taking input from everyone, even if you think it's input you've heard a hundred times in the past, or even if you think that it might not help you, you don't know, it might help you. you you're not entirely certain. And even if you think you're entirely certain, <laughs> you're not actually certain. So you need to hear people out. You need to absorb as much information as possible. So eventually, you know, we talked about 
kind of lacking or maybe needing to develop EQ. There was some rockiness, but you were starting to understand the business, which is really how is money made is, is a big piece of it. But ultimately, this the door closed on this position because I believe you said the company was sold. And now you've got your second role. Is that accurate? Where was that? So the second role was at Arby's that I had mentioned before earlier. Okay. With that first role, the door ended up closing because the company was sold, like you said. Before then, I was able to accomplish the mission that they had put out for me. Basically, they had hired me because they needed to have a security program in order to land bigger clients because they kind of demanded they have a security organization. And right. I, I helped them land a, one the biggest client they ever had. And shortly after, the company got sold. <laughs> I like to joke and say sometimes I work myself out of a job. But the truth is, I didn't do it as smoothly as I possibly could have. It probably took me two to three times as long as it should have if I had had those lessons and known those things ahead of time. Most of us make those same mistakes, but it's those difficult times, maybe even the failures that uh, sort of cement the lesson if we're listening to ourselves and to the world. And hopefully that make us more valuable going into the next. And you know a little more. You're now at Arby's. Now you're going to try to apply this sort of these lessons that were hard earned and learned. One of the things you told me that now you're in a spot where feedback is new. You're getting feedback and receiving feedback as kind of a, a new thing uh, or newer thing. What did you mean by that? So one of the things, obviously, when I was at that first organization, I was able to tell that there was something going on. I, I couldn't really quantify it or, or say what it was, but I knew there was something. So I started taking actions to try to address it myself. In some ways, it was taking shots in the dark. My answer at the time was I went back to get my technical master's in information security. In my ignorance at that time, I thought these people just don't trust that I'm an expert enough in my field because I'm younger than I, most people that do that role at the time. And I don't really have these credentials. I had all kinds of certifications, but I don't have these classical credentials. So I went back to get my master's in information security because I thought that would then some yeah. weight behind what I was doing. So you're going to double down on the nerd. and Yeah, pretty much. And that's what you like. Okay, I'm clearly not. They don't see me as smart enough technically. So I'm going to show them. I'm going to double down on this effectively. Effectively, which wasn't actually the right thing to do. I'm not saying. Why not? I'm, Why isn't that the right thing to do? Because that's not what my problem was. I'm not saying that the uh, getting the program, getting the degree wasn't helpful. Ultimately, it was helpful in the long run, but it just didn't solve the problem I was wanting it to solve by doing it. Lay that out, because I think people struggle with this where they think they need advanced education. They maybe want to take a master's program. Maybe that's an aspirational goal. All of this is fantastic stuff. All, all of it, I would, I would welcome the interest and the education and the passion that goes with that. You were experiencing, tell me about the, what problem did you feel was happening? What was the issue that you were having at work? Not necessarily why you went and got the technical masters. What, what did you feel like the problem was? Well, I felt that the problem was I wasn't trusted enough. And I felt that, which probably was what the actual problem was, but I felt that that's being caused by people not thinking I was an expert enough in my field. Got it. They weren't, they weren't trusting me to actually know what I was talking about which ultimately wasn't the problem, but that's what I thought at the time. The benefit, though, going back to that master's program, it did shore up a lot of my technical things. It did branch out and, and widen the base that I had to pull from, which was ultimately helpful. But the main thing that was helpful is at the beginning of that program, 
they make you take a business course. Just one, but they make you take one. And the main thing that it taught me that I took with me into the next role was the whole perception is reality, that these relationships are important and that the first step that you can do is to elicit feedback. Right. Don't provide feedback. Just go to people and elicit feedback. Just ask them what they think about what you're doing, what they think that you could do better, what they think about security in general and what security is doing and how it affects them and what pain points they have with it. All of these, those particular lessons I did get at the beginning of that program. And then the rest of it was all technical with a little bit of math and statistics, which ultimately is helpful. It's just not helpful to the problem I was trying to solve. I think many people fall victim uh, to that, that sort of life trap. And had they had someone to speak to or maybe even listen to, like hopefully they will now, uh, maybe they'll avoid that a little bit. There's nothing wrong with going and getting a technical master's, but maybe just making sure that the outcome from that is aligned to the problem that you're experiencing. One of the things that I think it's important for us to talk about here, and I do this with many of the guests, is if you tell me that getting feedback is something that's important and asking for it is important, then I think giving an example of how, that you, how you've done that successfully is important to share here on the show. So specifically, are you, are you calling up uh, different executives? Are you sending them an email? How are you inviting them to, to sort of exchange and provide feedback specifically? So at that time, I, this isn't how I would handle it now because I've learned a lot about how to do it better. But okay. at that time, when I had started at Art, one of the main things that I did is get the program running. I wanted to do the feedback pieces, but I felt at the time that I needed to be there a little longer before I could do it. So they actually had something to give me feedback on. Right. So I waited for probably about a year, a little less than, which, like I said, is not how I would do it if I had to redo it because it's not right. necessarily the right way to do it. But that's what I did. Arguably too long. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, I sent calendar request invites to all of the executives within IT that I work with on a regular basis, eliciting feedback. I really couldn't do much more than that because I hadn't developed the business relationships necessary to do more than that at that time. Though I didn't know that at that time, it just felt wrong for me to do it at that time. But that's why it felt wrong. So you shared with me kind of an interesting perspective that was provided to you from an executive. And you effectively received the information that there was a trust issue. Specifically, he said that the executives kind of treated the company like it was their child, and they didn't trust you with their baby. Why did they not trust you with their child, from his words? Yeah, a little more nuanced than that, but... Let's hear it. Correct me. What, what was the statement for them? <laughs> I was so mad at the time when they told me that, too. It was crazy. but. I had elicited feedback from one of the executives within IT. I don't want to call anybody out because I think they may even still work there. And he sat me down. I asked, I was saying that I wanted to get feedback on my role and what's going on. The first reaction was, did the CIO send you to do this? <laughs> it was like, no, but that's telling enough to show that it was something so out of character because I hadn't worked on any of that ahead of time that he couldn't really understand that I would be pursuing that on my own or of my own accord because it didn't fit into the character I had portrayed so far at the company, which is part of where those missteps were. Right. And when I got him talking about it, explained that I was doing it myself and that I'd, I'd learned it in my, in my master's program 
and I'm trying to better myself. I started working with him and talking to him and he came back and I kept saying, I don't understand why I'm not able to do some of these things. I started talking about how I do conferences and I've done white papers and I regularly speak on security, but I don't seem to have this trust within the organization itself. Right. A major telling thing was if I brought in an outside consultant to say the same thing I'd been saying for hundreds of times and they said it once, the company would trust them and we'd go do it. <laughs> oh man, don't get me started on that. But keep, keep going. Keep going. Uh, that's kind of another symptom of that. You haven't really built that trust within the organization. Uh, so he comes to me and he goes, Rob, this is the, what you need to understand. Most of the senior executives here have been with the company for a really long time. They've seen the company grow. They've been with it when it was small. They've grown it up. They've nurtured it. They've created this organization from the ground up. And you're coming in and telling them something that they either don't understand or they don't want to hear. And their initial reaction inside is, I don't trust this guy. I don't think he understands everything. Mm. And these people view the organization like you would view to view a child or your child. Because of all this growth and nurture and you, you feel like the guardian and the custodian of this organization because of that kind of an almost intimate relationship you've had bringing this company up. So they have to have the same level of trust with you to watch their own children as they would to do something with the company. And it has all that to do with a trust that you fully understand the organization. He didn't tell me that. I figured that out later. But I was so mad when he told me that. It probably took me a year. I'd left the company before I fully processed what he had told me and started putting it into action. So you covered a lot there. And I think this is another stumbling block that many people have. Actually, you've covered three things. And I'm going to cover two of them right now that are, that are so valuable. And I, I've been there. Many of my friends have been there. You've got to be like, hey, man, I'm known all over. All over. I'm speaking about these topics. I'm an expert. I'm writing papers. I just got accepted to speak at this big conference. I went and got another degree and none of you guys trust me, right? That's how you feel. That's your perspective. And they have kind of an equal counterpoint that, yeah, all that's fantastic, but that doesn't have anything to do with us, with that relationship. The other thing you said that I think is, I've been there many times and there's a, a great friend of mine that complains about this all the time too, where you have an idea it comes from the best intentions and it's from the heart and you care and you care about defending this company. And you've mentioned this a hundred times, you can't get any cooperation. Somebody comes in at $500 an hour and suggests it once and it's a brilliant idea. And then you're left thinking, what in the hell? I told you this for free, right? So I hope, I know there's going to be some people smiling when they hear you talk about this. Well, it's, it's not free. They do pay you a salary, but still. <laughs> Well, it's a, a net addition expense, right? It's, uh, you know, it, it kind of comes with the individual. You're right, though. It, it's not completely free. So you went on and you decided to do something about this. That's, that's not just the problems you mentioned, but others. You began to think, okay, I need to change. What I've done is not, not enough. And you went and got an executive coach. Now, for those that have never had one, or maybe for those that think it's even a little weird, what is an executive coach and what was that experience like? Like, how did that change you having that sort of accountability out to a coach? Uh, so I actually took two lessons from it. 
one of them was on business and one was on emotional intelligence. And the emotional intelligence one is why I went out and got an executive coach. Uh, so an executive coach is basically someone who you can go to, you basically sign the equivalent of a confidentiality agreement with them. So you can talk to them freely. They're not going to share anything. You could call it a, an individual NDA if you want. You basically, you take assessments, you talk about your career, you talk about what's going on with you, what you're trying to do, what your goals are. They work with you to figure out what some of those goals are and to make sure they're actually what your goals are. And then you also give them the people that you've worked with in the past, the different organizations you've worked with in the past, and they'll start this initial intake where it depends a little bit on your coach. Some people have different programs, but they'll start this initial intake then where they'll go and they'll start talking to all of these people from your past that you've worked with to try to get their honest interpretations of you as well. They call that a 360 degree view, right? So they pull in all this information so they can get a good idea of you from you, where you're wanting to go, what your goals are, and then all these perceptions of everybody you've worked with in the past in order to help put together where you have these weaknesses and where you've been falling short, whether you may know it or not. Can you help me with one thing? You mentioned the perceptions of people you've worked with in the past. Are they reaching out to those people? Yes. Oh, they, wow. Okay. So I think it's important. I didn't realize that. So would you say that state that a good executive coach does just that? Meaning if I were going to go get an executive coach, I probably need at least one and they weren't going to reach out to old colleagues. Would it be worth as much? Meaning, is it a crappy executive coach if they're not out sort of interviewing your, your prior colleagues? It just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Not all executive okay. coaches do that. The ones that concentrate purely on emotional intelligence won't do that because it doesn't really, it's not in their wheelhouse. Got it. But if you get an all-around executive coach, that's one of the things they do. There's also executive coaches that concentrate purely on perception, and that's the only piece that they do. And then they don't do the emotional intelligence piece. And the really good ones that'll do both are probably more expensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, okay. It just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Well, because you brought it up, we don't need it to the exact dollar or cents, but you told me it was nine months, an hour, about three times a week-ish. So that's that's sort of the scope. But what was roughly the sort of the investment beyond the time? What's the cost for those listening that are thinking like, okay, like, can I afford this? Or is it sort of worth the investment? What was the dollar amount? Roughly? So for me, I paid for an entire package thing because I was trying to get a whole lot done. So I, I got my resume rewritten. I got LinkedIn. I got advice on how to do social presence and imaging and all that kind of stuff, as well as these other pieces. Right. That's why it was a whole nine month program. And for me, that whole nine-month program was about $6,000. Okay. Now, that's, that's a sizable amount of money, but in the scale of, of investing in yourself and your career, it could be also measured as quite small. Would you do it again for that money? Would you recommend someone do it based on the outcomes that you had? I would definitely do it again myself. It has been innumerably beneficial. At the time, it was really hard to get that much money together to do it, but it was incredibly beneficial. So I think that's a really important thing. I mean, would, would you, let me put it this way. I always like doing this. If it were $10,000 back then, if you're like, look, you got a six is tough to get. You need to go out and save another four Gs knowing what you know. Is it still worth it? I would probably be talking about installment plans. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to weigh the, the, the investment. You know, you're, doing, you're, you're doing all this reflection. You're reaching out to a coach. You're getting sort of this, you're remodeling yourself effectively, right? 
you're yeah. everything from social presence and how do I look online and how, how, how what do people think when they see me? That's very comprehensive. I think there's some people, and I'm curious to see what you would say, maybe they don't have the time to do a full MBA or a full master's degree, but it sounds like something like this might be just as valuable in some ways. Would you agree to that? Yes. Honestly, if it was four to five times as much, it would have still been beneficial for me to do, though, wow. I, though I doubt I would have been able to get that much money together at that time. Hey, man, I look, talking about getting money together, I, I can remember wanting to take certain training and my employer wouldn't pay for it and paying for it out of pocket. And I was the only person in the room. For some reason, the instructor asked this. Out of 25 people, I was the only one that paid my own way. And I, I felt kind of sad. I should have felt proud about that. But I was like, oh, man, like this is doubly bad. Yeah, you know? the same general thing happened to me, too. So we talked about that first part. I'll just skip to the second one real quick to tell this quick story. Yeah. The second lesson I learned from that is I really needed to shore up my business knowledge because the only way they would trust me is if I had that business knowledge. So I went back to get my MBA, which means yeah. I have two masters, but I paid for my entire MBA myself because I knew it was beneficial. I mean, I used student loans, but it was still me paying for it. And I, they did that too there. <laughs> In that one of that class, they asked everybody, whose employers were contributing. And I was like the only person in the room that was paying the entire thing myself. That should be a point of, I mean, people know you're serious then. That's the one thing. They can't take that from you. There's, there's a level of commitment and you're ser- you know, you're not going to play around. You're not messing around. And I think the point that I highlighted in my notes from our earlier conversation, you talk about people hitting invisible walls. You mentioned that earlier. And I think that's the concept that you sort of threw down at this point. And you're talking about learning the language of business and you're talking about the MBA helping with that. Well, the problem is I think we're missing a really important part from that last question that we hadn't gotten to yet though. Let's get it. So I talked about the talking to the other people that I work for, my bosses, my coworkers, that really just gives you a true perception of what reality is Mm -hmm. because your perception isn't necessarily accurate. And that's what that piece does. And that and the resume and the imaging and all that stuff, that's actually the most minor parts of that coaching thing that happened. The most important part was the working on the emotional intelligence pieces and identifying the emotional intelligence pieces that I needed to work on. Mm. And that happened initially through a uh, assessment. Can't remember the name of the assessment that's done, but there's all kinds of them that are out there. I think a lot of them are kind of little hoopla, but they do do a pretty good job of telling where the areas that you might want to concentrate on are. And that's how my coach would work with me on them. And it would give me a good length of, from an emotional intelligence standpoint, what my strengths and what my weaknesses are. And we would work on some of my strengths because they might've been somewhat unique strengths and I can use them to better my career. And the weaknesses that have a direct effect on those perception pieces that we pulled in from all of the other people that he had conversations with. Got it. That allows me to target what I'm learning on that emotional intelligence scale and better myself going forward. The thing that was the craziest for me is I was in this technical career. I'd become a person who worked in security. I'd become a leader within security. And all of a sudden, all of these skills from my past life before I started any of this became things that were necessary. It's going to be different from person to person, but I'd worked as in a bartender for years when I was in college. And now I'm <laughs> I'm pulling on all these conversational abilities that I learned from doing that, that I'd never dreamed I would need to use in my technical security career. Um, in, in high school, I did years of theater. I had no idea that any of these things would become so important for 
public speaking and, and image management and all of these other things that start to become very important as you get into those leadership roles. And then having those emotional intelligence pieces to get the cues on how to develop those relationships are a really key piece that's necessary. And I feel so silly even now talking about that in a technical career. And at those technical levels, before you get into leadership, before you get into management, they really don't matter significantly. They don't. They'd yeah. obviously make things maybe a little easier for you, maybe make it a little more enjoyable, but they don't really matter for your success. They just, they don't become incredibly important for your success until you hit that point. And I think that that is one of the major stumbling blocks that we have in our profession, where you think of the commitment that being in, in theater represented when you were in high school or a younger person and, and the time you spent working on that, the amount of hours you spent on stage. And yet, you know, you had that in your back pocket the whole time and somehow you still ignored it. Like that to me is, is um, many people I know that are great, even executives, great leaders would be terrified to get up there and often give a presentation at a conference. And yet you were up representing yourself, whether it's in, in, in song or dance or whatever else, right? I mean, that's, a, that's far beyond what it takes to go represent an idea at a conference, I think, right? Yeah, it definitely requires a decent bit more self-confidence in your ability to get in front of people at least. Well, I think that's a big deal. And I think it's even more interesting, and if not even strange, that, that you had that and that you almost sort of shut that off when you went into tech and then didn't go back to it when you went into leadership. Yeah, I did use it a little bit when I would do conferences and speaking engagements and things of that nature, but it wasn't a lot. And I definitely didn't use it in my day-to-day -day business. There's a, a lot of theater in having a meeting <laughs> at work, <laughs> a, a, a lot like more that. than you would think. I like that. Yeah. Especially when you go to an executive level, especially when you go to a board level. You don't really understand it until you get far enough into it about all of the theater that's involved. Yes, there's ethics and business integrity and making sure you're honest and all this. I'm not saying you go up there and you, you string a whole theatrical spew of lies. You're, you're not trying to do that. But it's the, the, the confidence, the projection, the way you hold yourself, the way you talk, the way you carry your voice, the way you carry yourself in and out of the room, where you sit at the table. And the way that you sit at a table, all are theatrical type things, but they all really matter at those levels. I want to pick on a, a little bit. There's a whole nother sort of chapter of stuff I want to talk about, but you keep opening up this other. This is actually excellent stuff. I keep screwing you up. I'm sorry. No, no, no. This is fantastic. This is the best shows go this way. So you're saying that there's theatrics involved in running a meeting and at different levels, there's, you know, different sort of things to measure. And you mentioned how you sort of your presence and how you project your voice and where you sit and how you sit. For the listener that's curious about all of that, walk us through that. Let's first talk about presence and pr let's do presence and projection. What do you mean by that? Well, you have to, even if you don't feel like you belong there, you have to project like you belong there. Mm. And that's where a lot of that comes from. And, and I actually did have a problem where that hit me before I even went into leadership. Uh, this issue ran into me before I did anything in security leadership, where I would go into a conference room, I would feel like I was, I might have been the most technically expert person in the room, 
but I wasn't nearly as high on the totem pole as everybody else. So I would feel like I needed to defer to them. So instead of sitting at the table in the conference room, I'd sit at one of the chairs around the wall. Interesting. And this is like really early in my career. And I actually got some feedback at the time where senior leadership, my CIO was in the particular meeting in question, felt like I just didn't want to be there because I kept myself, I slinked away and I sat in the chair in the side of the room instead of at the table. Now, by the time the meeting started, the whole table was full. And if I had come in late and had to sit there, it would have been different. But I was one of the first few people at the meeting. So everybody that came in and sat at the table saw me sitting on the side of the room when there were still seats open at the table. And that is completely perception. And that's completely emotional intelligence. And that's completely theatrics. Yeah. So how do we how do we fix that? How do we there are people who are unknowingly putting themselves into this position? And as part of the show, we try to talk about those difficult moments that we're talking about in, in your career and, and these sort of teachable moments. And how do you get around that? What's the, what's the advice there? Uh, what's the mindset that somebody should have? Maybe they're a senior technical person and maybe they aspire to do something more, but they're in this same sort of trick bag you discuss. What do you recommend? So there is a sad reality to the situation a little bit you can create such a cemented image of yourself at an organization that there really is no way to recover from it, even if you change everything around. And it means you need to learn, you need to figure out what you need to do, and you need to move on. And that's a a really, really difficult lesson. Um, It's something I had to go through early in my career. Um, I'd been at the same company for, I think it was eight years at the time when all of that kind of cemented. And I I was actually, I was only there for seven. I stayed until I was there for eight. But at about seven years, it became cemented that that's what I would have to do. I was noticing these things. I was changing some of these things. But in order to really put them into practice and not hit this giant amount of baggage from everything else that had happened while I was there, I had to start over somewhere else. I had a very, very bright person tell me once, kind of a mentor, and at the time, I didn't know that I agreed with it. But as I get older, I, I know that I do now, and, and you're reinforcing it. He said that, that an organization and the people within it will only see you maybe one level above, maybe two, maybe two beyond where you came in day one. Meaning, in many cases, there's a cap on you no matter what. And that's a cap kind of on title, right? You only have so much kind of movement. And you're adding to that, that thesis that's saying that not only might there be a cap, but there's also one kind of on your image that even if you're making yourself better, getting feedback, learning about yourself, learning more about the business, all of the, you know, relationships, that there still may be a cap that you kind of have to get better and then reset. Did I articulate that correctly? Yes. Now, there is always exceptions to the rule. There are some organizations where that's not necessarily the case or where you could change something enough that it's noticed, or where maybe the entirety of senior leadership gets changed out or something. But those are very much the exceptions more than the rule. Along with this sort of self-reflection, I asked you what it was like going back and working on these invisible walls and trying to break through them. Uh, And you told me that the thing to keep in mind through all of it, or the bit of advice you'd give to the listener is that 
it takes a lot longer than you think, that the process goes slower than you want it to. What is this process? And, and it seems like an ongoing thing, but as it relates to, hey, I'm in a job, maybe, I, maybe I'm in a rut, need to work on some stuff. Is this something that happens in six months? Is it something that happens in a year? What did you mean by that when it goes slower than you want it to? It's either in your personal development or in your ability to make change at your organization. Right. Both go very, very slowly, significantly slower than you expect them to. And then there's other things that go much quicker. So this, I was talking earlier about the two main things I took out of that particular feedback that I got. And right. one was that emotional intelligence piece that I started working on. The other was the business piece and the MBA program that I got myself into. Um, I actually got my MBA from Temple University, which at the time was supposed to be the number one online MBA program. We can go into the how contentious that may or may not be, but at the time, <laughs> that's what it was. And that program took me two years to get through, which ultimately is a fairly fast amount of time. But I started reaping the benefits of understanding the business parts of it within the first six months, partly because I front loaded all my business courses because I wanted to do it that way. But it was a really quick turnaround for understanding the business and understand and being able to put those particular pieces into practice on how I can move things forward and start to build those trust pieces. But then the building of the trust always takes a long time. It's just the, the tactics happen much faster for me than I expected. Now, the emotional intelligence one is the opposite side of that. Right. <laughs> that one took significantly longer than I expected it to. I signed up for that nine-month program. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to knock this out in three months and try to get a refund. <laughs> but that's obviously not how it works. Wow. I'm going to get a rebate on my emotional intelligence. Uh, <laughs> or maybe I'll have them do some of my friends' resumes with me. <laughs> but that has a lot to do with, I had a lot of confidence in my ability that easily you could call misplaced. It was just general confidence. This is also something I learned. I call it a, a parable. And I talk to people about it sometimes. Confidence without trust is arrogance. So if you are displaying a large amount of confidence in what you're doing, but you're displaying it to someone who doesn't really trust you, it's going to come off as arrogance. I completely believe that. And I have allowed myself sometimes willingly to fall into that trap where I think confidence, passion sometimes, right? For people that are uh, strong technicians or passionate about mission. Right? The mission is to be a protector and to to keep to keep adversaries out of networks and keep outages from all these things. Right, this is a tough, almost impossible job. You have to have passion for it because it often just is just sucks, right? And so those that don't know you or that don't maybe see the mission the same way, they can absolutely feel that way. And I think that's a a great lesson to kind of sit back and reflect on. Speaking of EQ, yeah. So then to go back to the emotional intelligence piece, I, I got through my nine month program. I did learn a good bit over that time, but I didn't become this emotional intelligence guru. <laughs> I, I figured out how to soften some of my own edges and how to identify and understand other people and other people's perspectives a little better. I mean, that, that makes for a better world. If you can do that, or if you're unable to do it, you're not going to go far. You just not. We're getting close to time here, and I've, there's so much more that, that we have to talk about. Maybe we'll have to do it another time. But there's a couple more topics. Just in general, how helpful was kind of the resume slash LinkedIn overhaul? 
Were you surprised by anything there? Or was that helpful? Would you recommend it to a mid-career professional or even a young professional? It is. It was helpful in many ways because the person who I had as a executive coach, he also used to be a recruiter ah. before he went into executive coaching. So he knew what recruiters look for when they do searches and when they're looking for candidates. So it didn't necessarily help significantly in the I'm applying for jobs type category because unless your resume is a complete mess, they're mostly the same. But it did help significantly in the other people finding me for jobs, particular category. Good. It also helped with getting past, I call them the, uh, the robot guardians because every single job that's out there, every single HR person that does recruiting, they use some kind of robot or an algorithm of some sort to sort through all those resumes before they read any of them. I used to work with a guy that would say, instead of saying algorithm, he just called everything a logarithm. He's had a, that, that that's actually what the thing was that was going to prevent the resume from getting through in this example. You reminded me of that, but I think that having the point is that you have sort of digital relevance as well, right? That the digital gatekeeper isn't going to get you or keep you from the opportunity, which we struggle with that. I mean, I think that's, that's having that online presence. Another random question, but I like to ask it, what's your take or what was his take on the length of a resume? So you're mid-career or you're already CISO. How long should your resume be according to, to your, uh, your coach, Rob? <laughs> two pages. Only two? Okay. I've had some tell me one, that one is it. That's all you get. You get one in a cover letter. Well, the answer was two to three pages, but everything that you want them to read needs to be on the first page. Oh, okay. All right. I like that. So they're going to ignore, likely ignore the rest of it. Right. Then, the rest of it's there just to show that you've had a, a long and illustrious career, <laughs> that everything you are expecting them to read needs to be on that first page and preferably in the first paragraph. Brilliant. Well, we got one more question uh, that we ask everyone who's on the show, uh, pursuant to the name of it, uh, the new CISO. Rob, what does being a new CISO mean to you? That you need to be significantly more of a people person than you ever expected to be going into a technical career. Perfect advice. Rob, thank you so much. We didn't even get to everything I wanted to cover, and, and uh, we'll likely do that in the future. But thank you so much for the time you've given us today. And not a problem. Happy to be here. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.